What's going on, everyone? Welcome to the Healthcare Hustle Podcast. Today, we are joined by Priya Pathija, a nationally recognized healthcare leader, attorney, and founder of New Health, providing strategic and advisory support to startups, investors, providers, and others as they grow and scale new ways of delivering health and healthcare to women. Priya, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm so excited to be here with you guys today. And we're super excited to have you. Uh, we'll <laughs> kick it off as we always do. Priya, talk to us a little bit about where your journey started. Where, where'd you grow up, go to school, all that good stuff? Yeah. So I grew up in North Canton, Ohio, which is a smaller town about 45 miles south of Cleveland. Um, so grew up in you know, a predominantly white community, um, being one of the very few um, people of color. Um, it was interesting because I think for most of my life, I didn't actually realize I was one of the few people of color because I was just always in those environments. And it was as I grew older and became part of organizations where I saw fully people who look like me that I realized, oh, wait, back then I was just one or two, right? Like I had to sort of assimilate to where I was. But um, my parents came here in the 70s um, from India. They immigrated. And so we're first generation, me and my sisters. Um, they were both physicians. So in our house, there was a lot of talking about medical stuff always at the dinner table. Um, and we ate dinner together every day and talked about our days. So inevitably, my parents talked about their days at work. Um, and I think that sort of played a role in how I decided what I wanted to do um, when I grow up. Well, I mean, I was going to say the, uh, the the background is greatly appreciated. Um, I think context is everything. So I think just kind of sharing your 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 background and, and, and giving perspective as far as why you're kind of doing what you're doing and how your background as far as your family kind of pushed you towards that. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask is just as far as the the law degree and, and the intersection between healthcare and law, can you kind of talk about that a little bit and, and kind of your perspective from, uh, from a lawyer's uh, point of view? Yeah. I mean, so when I, you know, when I went to college, I thought I was going to work in business. Like that was my goal um, to just run a company someday. Um, I had no plans of sort of deviating to go to law school. But um, when I got to the end of undergrad, I realized I was not ready to get a job. And I had majored in finance and economics, and I didn't want a job in finance or economics. So I went to law school to kill time, right? I went to law school thinking, it's three years, I'm going to get this education, either I like it, and I'll be a lawyer, or I don't like it, and I'll be able to use the skills I learn in another profession, right? Um, and so I went to law school the summer after my second year, I got a job at a law firm. And at this point, I didn't even know health law was a thing. We didn't have any classes in it back then. Um, I didn't know it was an opportunity that I could avail myself of in the future. I just went in and said, oh, I'm going to do corporate law, right? Because remember, I wanted to run a business. And so I thought corporate law, right? Um, and I got to this law firm and I ended up really enjoying the attorneys that worked in the health law practice group. And so during the summer, I kept asking them to give me more and more projects. And that's when I realized I loved health law and I loved being able to take being a lawyer and connecting it with my family background of being in healthcare in some form or fashion. Um, and it kind of just clicked for me, right? And then I did that for a while. I went in-house at two different health systems and decided I wanted to try something new. And I switched to the policy side. Um, and at first I was really nervous because I was like, can I go from being a lawyer to doing policy work, right? Like, Will they take me? Will they accept me? And um, the reality is many of the skills that you use to be a lawyer and the skills you use to advocate for policy are the same, right? You have to build relationships. You have to understand what's happening in the laws and you have to be able to make complex things make sense in a way that other people can understand them so that you can change how they think about them, or you can help them understand how to navigate them. Um, and so there's that connection between law and policy, right? So policy is kind of the law before it becomes the law. Being a lawyer is interpreting that law. 
Um, but the connection to healthcare is really strong as well, because if you think about our industry, we are one of the most regulated industries in the country. And I read somewhere recently that we are the most regulated, um, but I did not fact, fact check that. So we are one of the most regulated um, industries. And so, you know, understanding the many policies and regulations that go into the day-to-day -day operations that you all lead at hospitals is so important, right? Because to do one thing in your role, there's probably like tens, twenties, hundreds of laws that have impacted your ability to do that and the way in which you do that. Um, I also sort of just wanna bring out the point of equity, right? So there's a lot of conversation about health equity now and how we are going to ensure that people have access to health, right? And how we do that is so dependent on laws, policies, regulations that have in, been implemented in our country for decades and upon decades, right? That got us to where we are. So housing laws, banking laws, financing laws, all of them, put certain communities in positions so that today they don't have access to the same things that other communities have, right? So Black communities were oftentimes put in areas that didn't have access to healthy water or to food. And so now, flash forward so many years, we are seeing those consequences show up in our health system, right? And so when I teach healthcare payment and policy, I spend about half the time talking about health equity because it is lawyers, it is policymakers that are gonna be the ones that ultimately change these things for the future because we can put as many programs as we want to together to address you know, cardiovascular disease in the South Asian community or maternal health in the black community or other challenges in the Hispanic community, but nothing's going to truly change until we change those fundamental laws, regulations, and policies that got us here. So hopefully that answers your question, Brandon. Wow. Uh, I think you did more than answer that question. <laughs> uh, there are so many different things that we really have to dissect uh, in what you said. Because, you know, the first comment that I'll just want to make um, is for me, I was kind of shocked like the transition from grad school into hospital administration at what I felt like was a lack of knowledge of general healthcare policy from the administrator side. With that being said, there are so many different things that, you know, we have to do in our day to day. And obviously providers have to do in their day to day. And so it was just interesting for me kind of being a policy nerd in grad school and then being an administrative fellow and being like, wait, you all don't know about like the ACA like that? Like, that's yeah. kind of strange. Um, but then at the same time, and one question I wanted to ask you, uh, when you were supporting uh, the two health systems that you were supporting, you served as general counsel, which I mm -hmm. think is not a position that I often think of um, when I think of, you know, hospital administration or health administration, but it obviously is a vital role um, mm -hmm. for health systems. So can you speak a little bit more about what you did in that role and, you know, kind of the experience that you gained uh, being a part of those healthcare systems? Yeah, so I um, was assistant general counsel at ProMedica and then general counsel for Georgetown University and Washington Hospital Center within the MedStar Health System. Um, and both of those systems were very different and the setup of the legal department was very different. So I can give you some examples of what I did in each, but day-to-day, um, -day, you know, responsible for making sure the legal needs of whichever business units or hospitals or entities you're responsible for are met. So at ProMedica, I had a wide range of business units. Um, one of the biggest ones, the one of the most challenging ones I'd say I was responsible for was called ProMedica Continuing Care Services. And that was where they put sort of all of the loss leaders for the organization that led to the other entities within the organization being successful financially. So that's where the long-term care facilities were. That's where ambulance, helicopter programs, um, assisted living, they had some of that too. That's where all of those services sort of were housed, right? So if y'all, you may not know this, I didn't know this until I took that role, but helicopter programs are extremely expensive to run. And, um, but they're 
incredibly useful if your system is set up where you have a large tertiary center and you have smaller rural communities around them that need to feed into that hospital, right? And so that unit had a lot of different types of challenges that I was not sort of prepared for. Again, like like you said, Winston, like coming out of school, you're not necessarily prepared for everything you need to do. But here I was, I had spent time at a law firm and I came into this role and I was just not prepared at all to help them with their business challenges. And I remember um, they were looking at you know, discharge requirements and the regulations around what information you have to provide patients when you discharge them from the hospital. So um, you can provide them with referrals to different entities, but you can't say, I'm going to refer you to this other ProMedica long-term care facility, right? You have to give them a list. And so they were trying to navigate how to do that while at the same time making sure that people were aware that they had a nursing home that they could go to, right? And so they asked me to figure it out, to read the regulations and to figure it out. And so I read the regulations and I called the, the president of that business unit and I said, well, you should just hire two FTEs to meet with all patients to have conversations about discharge planning and where they could go if they have long-term care needs. And she like lost it on me. She's just started yelling and she's like, where do you think I'm going to get money to pay for two FTEs? That does not work. I'm going to hang up the phone now and you're going to call me in an hour and you're going to do better. And you're going to tell me a way that I can do this within the budget that I have. Okay. So that's why I sort of shared sort of the financial position that this business unit was in because they didn't have the ability to hire two full-time employees, right? And I had been in this in-house role for like two months. I hadn't fully understood or appreciated the role that I play as a lead, as a legal team member in helping them not only navigate the laws that they have to follow or the regulations, but doing it in a way that works for the business, right? And so I hung up the phone and ran straight into my boss's office and I was like, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't know, I don't know how to think about this differently. And we had a conversation and we had many conversations over the next few months where he actually helped me to start thinking through how to be a partner with the business units and how to build relationships in a way that they would feel comfortable including me in the conversation early on rather than once they've already thought they've figured it out and just send it over for legal review, right? And so I got the opportunity to be at tables and to help move the business forward and offer that legal context and support throughout the conversation. So we didn't spend as a system hours upon hours coming up with how we think something should run and then have legal come in and say, nope, that doesn't work. Instead, legal could be at the table as a partner and sort of drive that forward. Now, then I moved to MedStar Health System and it wasn't set up in that exact same way. The way we were responsible for things were different. Um, so we weren't at every table, but we were at the important tables. And um, to some degree, we got to sort of influence that. And while I was there, I got to sit on the leadership team of the hospitals that I was responsible for. And so I remember at Georgetown every Monday, I was sitting with all of the executives of Georgetown as they were talking about and navigating different things. And their president at the time would um, always just call on me and he'd be like, well, Priya, what do you think? Or I'd get a phone call that said, oh my God, we have this patient care issue that we don't know how to handle. Priya, can you be in Dr. Goldberg's office in the next hour, right? And I'd show up and there'd be a care team and we'd all be sitting there thinking about it together. Um, and so I think a lot of times people think of lawyers as like these external people that don't get it, that are out of touch with what's happening. And that isn't always the case. Um, what I found, and I think what I really loved about being in-house was being able to be part of those business conversations. 
That's a uh, really awesome experience that that you shared there, both as like a fresh out of law school student kind of moving into that stuff and having someone kind of mentor you and teach you. And then it's kind of nice to hear how it was on the other side, because in my experience, when I was in our neurology department, it was kind of what you talked about, where we would really just go to the lawyers for sign off on things. And I found myself consistently being like, it just feels like this would work better if we talked with them before everything was all set. Um, so it's really interesting to kind of hear your side on the other side, kind of, you know, similarly going along with that exact thought process. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's different in every organization. And that's what I learned, you know, when I went from ProMedica to MedStar, right? It's not, it's not perfectly the same in every organization. And the amount of work that is put on the legal team can sometimes drive how this ends up working, right? So when I was at MedStar, I alone was responsible for two hospitals, right? So that didn't give me the amount of time I would want to spend in some of these business conversations just by virtue of how much was on my plate. And I think that's what happens in a lot of health systems with the legal team is there's just a lot to do. Like even just like we had, I was like responsible for all the clinical trial agreements at ProMedica and sat as a member of the institutional review board and was part of that whole clinical trial stuff. And in some hospitals, that IRB attorney that reviews all those clinical trial agreements is a full-time job, right? But it was one fourth of what I was doing, right? And so it really comes down to sort of how can it be staffed in a way that legal can truly play sort of a role as a support to the business units. And it's different in every organization. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Um, something else you kind of mentioned a, a little earlier that I found interesting, because I was kind of on the opposite side, as you talked about going into policy and being nervous that you had a JD. Uh, mm -hmm. When I came out of undergrad, I went into healthcare policy in DC with the exact opposite thought. I was like, oh my God, like I'm never going to make it. I'm not a lawyer. I sat down for my first day and got handed the federal register about something and had no idea what was going on for, for the first couple of weeks. Um, but I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about how that transition went for you and yeah. kind of what your experience was like working in policy. Yeah, I loved working in policy. Um, I still kind of work in policy, right, in what I do today. Um, and the transition for me was actually a lot easier than I anticipated it would be. I had a lot of imposter syndrome when I went from practicing law to doing policy work. And when I look at it in retrospect, I was like, I think like, how did I, how did I have imposter syndrome going from being like responsible for all the needs of a hospital from a legal perspective to hospitals to being nervous to read the federal register, right? Like, and to write comment letters. I, but I was, I was so nervous and I was convinced I would fail and that this change I was making in my life would blow up in my face in some form or fashion, right? Um, but it was actually a lot easier than I thought it would be because one of the issues that I was working on when I was at MedStar was related to recovery audit contractors and this proposed rule called the two midnight rule. And when I moved to AHA, the role that I was responsible for was for inpatient payment and rural hospital issues. And the number one issue I was working with was the proposed rule around the two midnight rule. So I had been working on it from a legal perspective and now I got to work on it from a policy perspective. So I think that transition was a little easier for me because I was familiar with that particular rule that was taking up so much of my time. Um, the other reason it was so great is I happened to start in July, which was like kind of a down month from a policy perspective, given what I was doing. Other rules come out in July, but the rule I was responsible for came out before that. And so I had a whole month. Um, and I spent that whole month just reading and learning everything that had happened in inpatient policy. And, you know, it was great because I had the opportunity to read um, that set sort of my mind in the right framework to do policy work. But you really learn it on the ground when you do it. Right. But so having that time made me comfortable in the terms and the words and where things were and how they present things in rules. Um, but I really learned on my feet. And I think 
The third thing that made it easier is, like I said earlier, a lot of the skills are the same, right? You build relationships. I was really good at taking complex legal things and making and saying them or writing them in a way that people could understand them. Um, I had been in health law, so I had that connection to healthcare and that overall understanding of how the hospital piece of the healthcare ecosystem operates. Um, so all three of those things made it a little easier. Um, and now, you know, I look back on it and it was such a natural thing for me to transition to. It was, it just didn't feel that way when it was happening. Wow, that's amazing. As far as just kind of building up into your current, as far as just understanding around policy and, and putting the boots to the ground kind of thing. I, I love that only because I think a lot of, I think young early careers struggle coming out of school with the idea of what their niche is going to be. And I think as you build this body of work and look back, you kind of <laughs> understand what your purpose is and where your, your, your commitment is as far as what you bring to the table. Yeah. Um, and, and I just love how it ties into policy with, for you, especially as an administrator, understanding now how much policy drives what we do. And we also don't really take into consideration the legal part of it, just the the the, the nights and the long hours that go into this kind of stuff. So um, just thank you for that perspective. Yeah, of course. Um, but, yeah. No, go ahead. I, I was going to say my question was really going to be just about as far as um, for our, for our um, younger audience who are maybe just struggling with understanding what their um, what their what their value is as far as to to their organizations or maybe even to the healthcare equity fight, how can you how can you build that body of work? What kind of opportunities did you look for? Um, how did you even carve your own way? What advice can you give to our to our um, early careers? Yeah, so I mean, with health equities specifically, I think it's a field where we spend a lot of time talking, but no one's really figured out how to do it yet, right? Like, there are folks that have figured out how to create programs that can make impact. Um, but I don't know of a single organization that has figured out how to do it collectively, systematically across an, an organization, right? And so I think as an early careerist, that actually provides a lot of opportunity to be able to learn and do the grunt work of figuring out some of these things, right? And I, I, when I talk about health equity, I talk about how it's a team sport and how it really takes every individual in an organization, no matter what seat you're sitting in, to contribute, right? And I always talk about um, what happened at NASA and there's this um, folklore story about NASA that when they were working to put a man on the moon that if you would have asked anyone who worked at NASA what their goal was, they would have said to put a man on the moon. So if you had asked the janitor or you had asked a mathematician or a scientist or the astronaut himself, they all would have said our goal is to put a man on the moon. And I think that's how organizations need to be looking at health equity. So for young careerists to be in their seat and to say, I'm going to learn what health equity means. I'm going to learn what my organization is doing to address it. I'm going to learn what the goals that have been set forth. And then I'm going to figure out ways that I can help. Right. And I'm going to try to do those things on a daily basis, whether that's asking strategic questions in meetings about populations we may not be talking about, whether that's if you're sitting in a seat that's around data, whether that's setting up an EHR system that can accept social needs data in a way that makes sense and can be coded down the road. If you're a clinician and you're a new clinician, how can you create an environment for your patients where they trust you enough to provide that sensitive information? So whatever seat you're sitting in, there is a place for you to play. And I think the first step is figuring out what those plays could be, right? And now, you're a young person and people are going to be like, oh, what do you know? You're a young kid, right? So you've got to be patient and you can't assume that these roles you found that you think will help improve health equity are going to be adopted by everyone immediately or everyone is going to be open to hearing all your ideas. There is that sort of balance. But I think as a starting point, you really need to understand what it is and understand different ways that from your seat that you're sitting in in that given day you can have an impact. Yeah, I think that is extremely sound advice. And you've mentioned things that 
luckily enough, I think all three of us have been a part of similar projects on our on our current health system. Um, and I just have to say, I think you have like the most comprehensive perspective on healthcare we've ever had on this show. I'm just, I'm just like, <laughs> not, not, like, like no, no, I'm serious. Cause I'm just like, you know, listening to your career. I'm like, yo, this could have been a TV show. <laughs> like for, for just like <laughs> inspiring, like up and coming healthcare professionals, because I feel like, you know, you've gotten to assume leadership roles in so many different aspects of the business in general. Um, I actually find it fascinating that you still have, a charge towards health equity, uh, to be completely <laughs> honest. And and that's simply, you know, because I think the reality is, again, you know, some of the initiatives that, you know, you mentioned, definitely we have, uh, you know, organizations I would argue that are leading in this space, but we know when it comes to true systemic change, um, when we, we, we know when it comes to macro level policy, I think, you know, the things that maybe we want to see as a generation, it, it's going to take a considerable amount of time um, and effort. And so uh, there's so many different things I want to ask you about rural health, (laughs) women's health, but I really do want you to maybe take a step back or a step forward and really just tell us, you know, in the health equity space, what change is really practical? Like what macro level change do you think maybe by the time that, you know, you're retired and ready to hang it up um, or we are like, we should be able to expect. Yeah. I mean, the big goal that I have for like the world and the vision of all of this is that we stop talking about health equity in silos, right? That we stop thinking it's something separate on the side and that we stop putting it on one department within an organization to be responsible for equity, diversity, and inclusion. And we assume that it is that person who has that title and the team members that sit on that person's team that is responsible for doing this. Like, I would love for health equity to be in every conversation and not a separate conversation, right? And I think that's where we need to go if we want to start seeing the change that we want to see, right? Because I think right now, at least in conversations that I've seen or been a part of, or people have shared with me that these are happening, there are a lot of people who are trying to figure this out. There are a lot of people who truly believe we need to make these changes, but we've got to convince so many other people and we've got to bring them into the work and we've got to explain to them the ROI of health equity, right? Because It's not just the moral case that we want to make communities better. There's actually dollars and cents that come from having healthy communities, right? And we need to be talking about that more. And we need to be figuring out how to quantify some of those so that the efforts we take don't scare the people who are responsible for managing the finances of an an organization. Because if you think about the fact that our payment system doesn't actually pay for this work around health equity, right? There's always sort of that question of how are we going to do it when hospitals and health systems may already be strapped for money or be in the red, and now we're asking them to do this. We're not actually asking them to do anything that's different from the mission that we have, right? Like, we have a mission that we want people to be healthy, and that's health equity. Or, we, you know, we want that, but we have a payment structure that doesn't necessarily support that. So how do we bring out what the ROI is in this work? Um, and so that's that's the dreams dream space of where I want to be, where it's all connected. And we're talking about it in every conversation all the time because it's connected to the business of the operation, right? Um, Where we can get realistically, I think we can learn how to get the right data. I think we can learn how to analyze data around what's happening with patients and communities. And I think we can learn how to address problems based on that. Um, But again, I would love to see it become a systematic approach and be sort of addressed in a similar way across all of these large systems. Because I mentioned it before, and 
there are a lot of systems that are, have figured out great pockets of work, but how do we scale it and how do we make it meaningful for anyone who steps into any hospital that has that same logo on it, right? Or better yet, how do we all figure out how to do it so that when any patient steps into any hospital, they know they're going to be treated as a whole person and that their needs are going to be met. So, yeah, wow. that one, I don't really know if I answered your question, but no, no, you definitely did. <laughs> and I like it. I like it because there's, you know, there, they are succinct and I think practical things that can be accomplished. Um, I think, you know, both of, of the answers that you provided a quick follow-up to that, um, because you, you mentioned, you know, our payment system, and this is something I feel like we ask a lot of different people, or we kind mm -hmm. of throw this scenario at them, uh, you know, internally, um, you know, we may hear the conversation of, well, we cannot invest in neighborhood X because the payer mix is poor, you know, AKA those, you know, vulnerable folks, those poor folks don't have insurance, you know, yeah. so we're not, it's not going to be good for the business. That has been probably the starkest thing that has been said to me or in front of me to make me understand like, okay, this is the genuine position. From a policy perspective, who is the bad guy there? Who, who are, or who are the players there that are using that as an excuse or either creating that reality that hospitals simply cannot make bolder and bigger investments because the, the payment and reimbursement is just not there? So first, I just want to say from a hospital hat, I think in a lot of cases, the payment is not there, right? So there, it's not just a big, bold statement, right? It is hard to do this work and to go into communities and figure it out, given the way that hospitals are paid for services, right? Hospitals are paid for heads and beds, right? Plain and simple. So this work to go into communities and to partner with other organizations is simply just not it's not been how the how we've set up structures, right? We've set up structures to align with the incentives and the incentives are heads and beds. And that's, there's no fault in that. That's how you run a successful business, right? Um, but when I started teaching healthcare payment policy, I got to start looking at healthcare from all perspectives and the full payment system, right? So not just Medicare, Medicaid, which is what I was working on at AHA and that federal perspective, but I had to look at how drugs are paid for and how pharma pharmacy companies make money, right? How private insurance works and how insurance companies make money, um, how physicians are paid. And I just, I mean, it was a kind of eye-opening experience to be able to teach it from the entire ecosystem. And I left my first semester thinking, this is really messed up, right? Like everyone sort of plays a part in how we got to this system that we have today, right? Because everyone is working to preserve what they have while saying they want to change, right? So you can't really change if you are digging your heels in to preserve what you have. Like, we know that as humans, we know that in healthcare payment policy too, right? So I think a lot about, and I have my students actually debate um, the pros and cons of Medicare for all. And when you think about Medicare for all, and you think about how that is a unique situation in which payers, hospitals, pharmaceutical companies, clinicians all came together to rally against Medicare for all, right? And their argument was, we're just gonna build on the ACA and what we have and, and we can fix it ourselves. Like we are committed to making change while at the same time, keeping everything that we have exactly the same the way we have it today, because we don't want to take the risk that we could lose it, right? And so I don't think there's any one party to blame. I think every party is riding on the incentives that have been built to support them. And I often say to my students, which, you know, I don't think it changes until we blow it all up. I don't think it changes until we say we are committed to structuring something completely different 
that works for where we are in 2023. Now, from a policy perspective, I know that that's completely impossible to obtain in the current political environment. Um, and there are ways we can start to see incremental change. I think value-based payment and value-based models are starting to test that out. I wish we were further along in that, but we are where we are and people are you know, starting to figure it out and we may be able to make change there um, for some patients, right? Because again, value-based care is only a small percentage of payments right now across the country. So, and there's, there's challenges there too. Like in the past couple of years, CMS has really highlighted the challenge with value-based care and that it isn't equitable. It isn't being offered to um, all communities in the same way. It is primarily being offered to suburban white communities, right? Like that may not need it as much as some other communities. Um, so We'll see where we go. I do like that so many people are passionate about this work and so many people are moving it forward. Yeah, I think you you brought up a ton of good things there. You really got my uh, wonk brain going, as the <laughs> DC heads would say. Um, and I know there's been a ton of work in terms of the value-based payments. When I was in neuro, we were fighting hard for bundle-based payments. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, there's, there's just a ton of ways that we can kind of approach this. But yeah, I think blowing it up is probably the, the key way to go. <laughs> um, but, you know, I want to make sure we have a little bit of time to, to talk about your your company that you oh. recently started. Um, so, you know, we'd, we'd love to hear a little bit about what what got you thinking on that and how your initial journey has been as an entrepreneur. Yeah, so how I got thinking on it, um, one of the areas that I was responsible for at the AHA was maternal and child health. Um, and I had had no experience in that area when I was asked to help lead some of the educational resources that we were putting out. And so I immersed myself in conferences and online education so that I could sort of get up to speed. And this was about, say, five years or so ago. Um, and I went to all of these conferences and they would tell stories and they would have women who had survived sort of near death experiences or horrible experiences related to racism with their clinicians and they would tell their stories. And for like that whole period I was immersed in this education, I cried every day. Like maternal health is just one area where we are not even close to getting it right, right? Like we are in last place compared to developed nations. Black women are four, three to four times more likely to die in childbirth than white women. Um, Native American women have that same statistic um, and it's getting worse. Like every time the numbers come out, it's worse. And we can, we now have data from the CDC that says 80% of these deaths are preventable and we know what's causing them. So we could, actually go address those issues and see those numbers go down. But we're slow to do that for some reason in our society. And then, you know, so I'm taking all this in and I, and I feel more passionate about making change than I ever have in my career. And then I started to look at women's health more holistically outside of just the maternal health expert experience. And I realized that there are so many places where the healthcare system just does not pay attention to women in the way that they need to. And I read this book called The Pain Gap, which um, came out um, sort of maybe eight months, 10 months before I actually left the AHA. And it sort of put all of these challenges for women into 300 pages. And I was so fired up. Like I remember at Christmas, I was reading it and I'm like highlighting and tabbing pages. And my mom's like, are you reading? Or are you coloring? Like what's going on over there? Right? Like everything in the book was like hitting me in a way that like I knew I needed to do more. Right. And so I started sort of looking for jobs in the women's health space and wasn't finding anything that really matched sort of my unique skill set and what I had done so far in my career. And so I decided I would just do it myself and bet on myself and figure out a way that I could take the, the business, the law, the policy, the strategy, the operations, everything I had accumulated in my skill set, bucket, whatever you want to call it, and 
make a change and make impact in some way. And so I started New Health um, pretty much a year ago today um, and decided that I wanted to focus on three areas. Um, the first is providing strategic and advisory consulting services to startups and others who are looking to change the way care is delivered to women. Um, and really there, you know, I wanted to use the 20 years of hospital experience I had to help startups build you know, hospital engagement strategies to help them navigate conversations with hospitals. Because as you can imagine, those who work in hospitals speak a completely different language than those who are running startups, which are prim primarily sort of tech startups, right? Or digital solutions. And so being that hospital whisperer that could help them understand how to get in the door, how to have the right conversations, how to present the right information, and how to truly be a good partner to hospitals and health systems. And so that's the strategic and advisory consulting services. Um, and then I wanted to focus on education and thought leadership and doing as much writing and speaking as I could to raise awareness around women's health and the gaps that we were seeing and how there were certain conditions that, you know, only occur in women, mostly occur in women and occur differently in women and make, make more noise around all of that so that the healthcare field understands this because they're not always trained in this in their training programs, right? So how, how can I do that? And then the third piece, I have this dream of creating a grassroots network of women that know how to advocate for themselves in the healthcare system. And we're just taking baby steps there. I started by having sort of a monthly education series where we can educate on a topic related to women's health and bring in some of the best and brightest experts to talk about it. Um, so last night, we actually had a session on breast and gynecological cancers and brought in a breast surgeon and a gynecology, gynecology oncologist um, to talk about sort of what, what are these conditions? How can you prevent them? How can you screen for them? What are things that you can do as you're navigating the healthcare system once you've been diagnosed with these things? Um, and the sessions have just been really powerful. Um, and we're going to keep them going once a month on different topics. And then once we sort of have a critical mass of folks that continue to come, figure out the next steps and how we actually give them tools so that when they show up for their mammogram, they have the right questions to ask. Or when they show up at a hospital, they know that they can have a doula. They know that they can have, um, they can ask these questions as they're giving birth. They know that, you know, the risk that comes with C-sections and they understand how to advocate for a delivery that doesn't involve a C-section if that is what they want, right? Um, or they know how to choose whether they want to have their child at a birthing center or a hospital. Um, how do we set women up to have the information they need, be prepared to answer the questions that they want, um, that they have, um, and to be listened to and to be heard and to feel valued as a part of their own care team, right? Because it's it's her body, right? She's part of that care team. And how do, we, how do we make sure that that happens? And as you can tell, I'm like really passionate about those last two points and pillars, but um, I really love all that I've been able to do this year. Um, and in addition to sort of the women's health, I've been doing some health equity work as well, just because I'm passionate about that. And um, we'll see where it goes. I wanna spend some time in the future sort of evaluating how this becomes something more than it's been in the first year and perhaps how we can learn more, how other players in the space can help improve health and healthcare. Like, so let's not just put it on hospitals and health systems or clinical providers. Let's think about what role do employers have in offering the right benefits that can help support women throughout their entire life, right? So we've seen a lot of employers offer fertility, um, egg freezing, or certain maternal benefits um, related to the pregnancy episode, but there's so much opportunity to offer benefits that are designed for women who are going through menopause or women who have endometriosis, which is one in 10 women in the country, right? And they sometimes need to miss work and they need flexible work policies. And so how, how do we do that across our entire society and not just place it all on one, one part 
or one piece of the healthcare system. Wow. Uh, you know, I think we're really lucky to have someone like you that has the initiative uh, and I think the passion just to be able to support the next generation of startups that really are going to be addressing some of these issues. And I think just the final piece of what you said, I think is so important, not really putting it all on one entity or one uh, kind of organization. And so um, it's it's funny for me because like listening to just your story and your career and just all of the really succinct answers you've had for every topic we talked about today, it's like, this is the power of staying committed, staying focused, you know, being open to taking, you know, a leap of faith and, and doing some of the things that you have done. So um, not to get too preachy, I just want to say thank you for, for joining <laughs> us and really extending uh, a lot of your insights and knowledge um, to, to us and our audience today. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. It's been, it's been great getting to know you even before just taping this podcast and learning about what you all are working for, like working on in your roles. And I'm excited to see all of you sort of step into your power as you get through your careers um, and to see you guys as the future leaders of health systems and other types of healthcare organizations. I think I love having conversations like this. Um, I don't love always talking about myself, but I love sort of being able to learn about new people and figure out where they can make the biggest impact in their life. And so thank you again for inviting me. Um, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a blast and it's been extremely insightful for us. And I know definitely for our audience, um, we say this for a lot of people, but I think this definitely could have been a multi-podcast series. <laughs> there was so much you had there that I wanted to just keep asking questions on, but we've only got so much time. Um, and I, you know what? I'll be looking forward to maybe next year or next few years after that, we'll be sitting on a C-suite panel somewhere together and we can be talking about this to a live audience and we'll, we'll just kind of shoot for that. Yeah, um, that would be amazing. It's going to happen. So, uh, <laughs> you know, we, but we have some fun to have at the end. I've got a few rapid fire questions for you. Um, but before we get to that, where can people find you and your website, all that kind of stuff? Uh, how can people look you up and connect with your work? Your yeah, company? so I'm super active on LinkedIn. Um, so folks can follow me there. I post a lot about health equity and um, women's health across the entire continuum. So a lot of maternal health, but lately a lot of menopause because it's menopause awareness month, um, but kind of just hitting the full spectrum of women's health. So if anyone's interested in that, they can follow me there. Um, my website is newhealth.com. It's N-Y-O-O health.com. Um, you can go there for to find out more about the company and what we're what we're trying to build with new. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right. So it's rapid fire time. So it's going to be a little bit of a different vibe than the rest of the podcast. <laughs> this is hopefully a more relaxed way to send us off. Um, yeah. So if you're ready, I'm ready. I'm ready. All right. What was your last impulse buy? Oh my God. I bought a Louis Vuitton tote bag that I like as a present to myself for starting my own company. And I came home after buying it and I laid in my bed literally for like two hours thinking, I just started a new company. Why, why did I buy this? Right? Like this was not the time to buy this. Um, and I have a therapist and I recommend that everyone has a therapist. And I, I had a call with her the next day and I told her like that I was in this paralysis after buying this handbag. Right. And she goes, you can't, you can't live in poverty. You have to live the life that you want to create the life that you want. So I'm not suggesting that you go buy 10 more bags, but I'm suggesting that you have worked really hard throughout your career and you are working very hard now and you've done something brave. So reward yourself and live in it. And so that was my, that, that was my last like big sort of, should I have purchased it or not purchase? I love it. Plus, you know, if you're smart, you can say it's a business expense, depreciate it <laughs> over the year, you know, you can make it work. Uh, what language would you learn in a week? It, just say you're going to learn in a week, no matter what, what are you going to pick? I would pick Cindy, which is the language of my family. And I never learned that um, growing up. Um, my 
parents obviously speak Sindhi very fluently coming from India. My family in India speaks it as well. Um, but when we were growing up, I mentioned my parents were both doctors. And so they both worked full time out of the house. And so we had babysitters and I, they started to teach me Sindhi and I was fluent as a kid, but then we they had to start speaking English at home because I would talk to the babysitter and Cindy and she wouldn't understand me. And then she'd constantly be calling my mom at, at work. And so I also wish I had learned it and could learn it because, you know, it's kind of a dying language because the area that I, my family is from in India um, was split during the partition. So when India got independence from Britain, um, they drew the map and they created Pakistan and India. And so the area that my family is from is actually in Pakistan now, but everyone migrated to the South. And um, so our community, they're saying that this will be the last generation that the language is preserved because we all disseminated into different areas and then assumed the languages and the cultures of those areas that we lived in. So very few people speak it. So long-winded way to say the language that I probably should have been speaking my whole life. That's, yeah, that's pretty cool. And last one for you, I see you've got a ton of books back there. You, you spoke a little yeah. bit on the pain gap earlier. Favorite book or author? Oh, man. So lately, it's been um, Taylor Jenkins Reid. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her, but she wrote um, The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo and Daisy Jones and the Six and a bunch of books that are now being made into movies and television shows. Um, she's just an easy read. And every book she writes, she writes in a unique and different way. So, for example, Daisy Jones is about a band with six band members, hence Daisy Jones and the Six. And the chapters are all interviews that someone is doing of the band members. And so the whole story unveils through these interviews. Um, but then if you pick up her book, One True Loves, which is also made into a movie, that's just your standard, like easy to read, romantic comedy type book. Um, but every, every book has a different sort of feel to it, even though it's the same author writing it. That's really cool. I especially like the interview style format to, to kind of lay yeah. out the story. But, you know, that's that's all we had today. Priya, thank you so much again for joining us. I had a great time. I think Winston and Brandon had a great time and I'm sure our Absolutely. audience is going to love it. Thank you so yeah. much. Thank, thank you. you all.